the the things that they've talked about is being able to uh, do their own research um, and be self motivated uh, because our school the vast majority of their their work in the classroom is uh, individual. Welcome to TG2Cast. I'm your host, Aaron Blackwilder. Today I have the pleasure to discuss project-based and environmental learning with Skylar Prim. Skylar is a co-lead teacher and advisor at Highmark, the treasurer for Wisconsin Association for Environmental Education and a fellow of the Greater Madison Writing Project. His teaching practice is grounded in project-based learning that allows education to be used as a tool to connect youth with their community and become environmentally conscious citizens. Skylar's writing can be found on his Medium blog under the user at Skylar P. Good morning, Skylar. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Aaron? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for joining me today. Um, looking forward to talking about project-based learning and environmental education. Why don't you start off by sharing about your context? What do you teach? Sure. Yeah. So I teach in a uh, small school in a small town in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, the town is called Montello, and our school is a small public charter called Highmark Environmental Charter School. Um, we're named after the county we're in, uh, which is Marquette County. Um, the school is nine years old. Uh, we have a cap of 32 students and we have two full-time educators, or excuse me, full-time teachers uh, and uh, two support staff at this point. Um, our community, like I said, is very small. Our district is all in one building, pre-K through 12, and it's about 740 students. Um, we're, we're rural. Uh, the, the area really depends on uh, heavily on tourism for uh, income. And uh, it's I, I, it's relatively low income. It's not the poorest county in the state, but it's uh, definitely not the richest county in the state either. When you say it depends upon tourism, what are you talking about? What kind of tourism? Um, it's, it's mostly um, uh, outdoor based. And so like in the winter, that's uh, snowmobiling and uh, ice fishing, that sort of thing. And in the... Um, summer months it's re you know regular fishing boating um uh, canoeing that sort of thing and hiking so so it's really uh strongly based around natural resources project-based learning is an approach to learning in which students actively explore real world problems and challenges and acquire a deeper knowledge quite often through the four c's communication collaboration critical thinking and creativity However, environmental education is something new to me. What is environmental education and how does it fit into project-based learning? So for us, environmental education goes uh, beyond just the idea of studying like ecosystems and natural resources in, in its own silo, um, which I think is a uh, pretty common uh, conception of what environmental education, like it's a science class that you take, uh, like an AP class or something, um, something extra. Um, one nice thing about uh, Wisconsin is that uh, there's a federal or a state mandate that all students in grades uh, kindergarten through 12 re receive some amount of environmental education. Um, and so it's it can't just be one thing that is siloed off into its own class that kids get once in their career. Um, 
it's more about having a context for learning and uh, providing students an opportunity to, to really, uh, in the words of our, our newly adopted environmental uh, literacy standards in Wisconsin, connect, engage, and explore their environment or their um, community. So what led you to connect project-based learning to environmental education? Yeah, so um, what's what's neat is that we're able to take a look at, you know, there's field trips. We take students outside, um, well, we take students outside as much as possible, but uh, at, at least once a week at our school, we spend the entire day outside of the classroom uh, for what we call field experiences. Would that include the winter months as well? Yes. Yeah. Year round. Um, well, not in the summer because we don't have, well, unfortunately, we don't have year round school. I would, I would, that, in an ideal world, we would be a year round school and I would, I would do that. But um, yeah, all, all school year. So we, um, for students that don't have the, the proper gear, although most of them do, we provide, you know, snow gear and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so we spend, uh, you know, at least 20% of our time outside of the classroom. And if those were just field trips where we're going to a place, getting a lecture about it and then going home, um, I don't think it would be anywhere near as educationally meaningful or worth dedicating 20% of our, uh, educational time to, um, however, when we can turn those into an experience that's project based, it becomes really meaningful and something that students, uh, learn not just content, but also leadership skills, uh, collaboration skills, communication skills, and they just learn about their place in their community. Um, and about the importance of their community. Yeah, I think it's important that schools are connecting more with the community and vice versa. I think we should be getting away from state mandates and move more to local initiatives to improve schools. Who knows what our children need to know more than the community? The local communities rely upon the schools to help ensure that the community is thriving into the next generation. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I, I think that's that's one of the things that I think is sometimes uh, seems ironic is that this I'm, I'm teaching in a really innovative school that's been really well supported by our district for this is our ninth year that we're finishing up right now. And um, we're, you know, a tiny rural district. But the reason is because that's what tiny rural districts need to innovate Um they more than, and they both need to more than larger districts, and they're more able to because it's easier to, uh, you know, they're more nimble basically, um, and they're more able to meet their community's needs. Can you describe some examples of the projects that students are currently doing? Take us inside your classroom. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the field, um, the recent field experiences that we've done are, um, we've had a really strong partnership with uh, Wisconsin Friends of John Muir. Um, and uh, that John Muir has a strong connection to Wisconsin. Uh, and in particular, actually, his boyhood home is in Marquette County, um, just just about a 10 minute drive from our school. Um, and it's a county park where his uh, the land that he used to uh, explore as a boy and he, he that he wrote beautifully about in some of his uh, writings about his youth. Um, and the friends of John Muir have been purchasing land uh, around that space that has been farmland in the past and have been working to restore that land. And we've been able to uh, give our children the experience of uh, 
working that land and finding ways to restore it. Um, so we've been spreading prairie seeds. We've we've removed invasive species and removed um, brush from those lands, and then gone through the process of broadcast spreading uh, prairie seeds to try to work at restoring those to what they were, uh, or at least close to what they might have been during John Muir's time. So there's a lot of science involved. Students need to know about the invasive species and how to address them along with the indigenous species and how to nurture them, correct? Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, why it's important to have um, a diverse uh, diverse species in a prairie versus the, a monoculture that you would have from invasive species or from uh, most uh, farmland. Wow, that's really interesting. I bet your students thrive on these things. Yeah, they, they really do. And it's and it's neat that it's places, uh, the, the best I think of our projects are the ones that are close to home because that's something that they can then look back at uh, years from now and, um, and recognize like I made a difference there. I did something there. Education needs to have purpose. We are not preparing kids for that test next Tuesday or the class I'll take next year, but rather what we do today should have an obvious impact 20 years from now. Yeah, and, and I think one of the one of the other unique things about our school is that uh, we, we serve students in grades 7 through 12, and so we, I, I have students, uh, last year was our first graduate that had been with us for six years um, from 7th through 12th grade, and so the growth that and the, the things that she got to experience over the course of that and the privilege that I had of getting to, to see her growth over those six years um, was really amazing. Um, and this year, in next, next Friday, we'll have three graduates uh, that were with us for six years. One of the big pushbacks I keep hearing against more progressive education is that it gives our kids a disadvantage when applying to college. How have parents and students received this shift in learning? And how has it made your students college and career ready? Yeah, so that, you know, I can't pretend that uh, college admissions and college that college readiness haven't been a concern um, with families and parents uh, over the years. I think that uh, we've really, we've benefited from a couple of things. One of which is that there's, there have been, there's been a pretty, uh, robust history of project-based schools in the Midwest in particular that have uh, led the way uh, prior to us, um, particularly in Minnesota, uh, right next door, who has, you know, they have some very long-standing uh, experience with project-based schools and uh, successful project-based schools. Um, so we were able in the early years to say, like, look at these other schools, these kids are going on to do good things, you know, we we can assure you it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> uh, but of course it was kind of like take us on faith a little bit for the first few years of the school. Um, since then we, we're, we've had students who have gone on to um, both two year and four year colleges. Uh, and so we're able to sit, to use them as uh, specific examples of uh, getting accepted to college and doing very well. And, reporting back to us about how their experiences with us prepared them for those or conversely like the things that they wish that they've been able to have that we've been able to um, reflect and and work on uh, to adapt um, to what you know we find out okay well they needed or they wish they had a little bit more robust or variety in writing instruction so that's something that we've worked on over the last couple of years um, with our students. Can you provide some examples of how the community has come together to support the school and uh, support learning within the school? 
I, I think that we've just, uh, you know, so one of the, the great things and uh, tough things about our school is that it's so small. Um, you know, the, it's, I, I love it because it means that I know every student really, really well. And I know the families really well. Um, and uh, the, the parents really are huge supporters of the school. And they, they, you know, bring in, we have a food pantry at the school and the parents are always bringing in food for us to um provide things that they need uh, when they go to school. So the things that students have reported to us that have been really great for them uh, when they've gone to school are those um, relationships and the willingness to talk to adults. And I think we've really uh, flat out told all of our graduates, like no matter what, when you go to college, the one thing you need to remember is to take advantage of all the resources that are there, talk to your professors, take advantage of office hours, um, go to the writing center, you know, take advantage of tutoring if you need it. Uh, just, just reach out. Um, cause these things are there. What happens is then the, the college has a vested interest in you being successful. So let me flip that around. What are graduates saying that the school has done well to help prepare them for their future? Um, the, the things that they've talked about is being able to, uh, do their own research um, and be self-motivated uh, because our school, the vast majority of their, their work in the classroom is uh, individual and uh, uh, student driven. And so, you know, we provide the, the support on the side, but we don't uh, micromanage them and tell them you have to do this by this day, you have to do that by that day. And, you know, that's very much like a real college experience where, you know, you may have deadlines, but you're not going to have somebody holding your hand and telling you, you have to do these pages this night and these pages that night. Um, that's been a really big help. And then I think also the ability to work with others and, uh, to know how to problem solve with others, uh, on our field experiences, we have them, um, set up in field teams of five or six students each that are student led. And they, there's, often conflict. I mean, you, you can imagine that when you stick a bunch of teenagers together between ages, uh, summer is, you know, as young as 12 and summer as old as 18, uh, sometimes there's going to be conflict and they learn how to productively work through that conflict without it being the end of the world. Um, and I think those types of, uh, real world skills are, are things that they find really valuable. I've discovered that one of the greatest benefits of project-based learning is it helps students build those interpersonal skills, how to problem solve. Those are the lifelong lessons that go beyond the curriculum uh, that are essential to prepare them for the real world, whereas grading and constant assessing does not. I read an article of yours on your blog site titled, How Do You Assess That?, where you essentially discuss how grades get in the way of authentic learning. How have grades become a roadblock as a project-based learning teacher, and why have you given them up? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So, uh, interestingly, I haven't actually ever given a grade as a as a uh, licensed teacher. Um, the only the last time I gave grades was when I was a student teacher ten years ago. Because um, I've been I've been uh, very privileged to teach in two different. Uh, public charter project-based schools that were both gradeless by design from the start. Um, so I've never had to navigate like getting rid of grades either. <laughs> um, so I've been, that, that's been, I think really, really, uh, it's been a privilege, um, frankly. Um, 
And I think that, you know, when I started out, I thought, well, like, I like not having to give grades because it's uh, a pain. It's a pain. Uh, but as time has gone on and I've, I've done more reading and um, had more experience with, you know, our students do take classes in uh, some of our students take advantage of dual enrollment at colleges. Um, some of our students uh, take advantage of classes like elective classes at the high school in our district, um, the traditional school. Um, and as I see, you know, the impact of grades on students, I have, I think, gotten more radicalized with, uh, with age and just become really convinced that grades are just corrosive um, to uh, learning in general. Um, and that I just don't think that, I think they create incentives that are counter to learning. And I, the, the only time they come up for us, frankly, is for college applications, scholarship applications, and, uh, insurance letters for, uh, uh student drivers. <laughs> um, and uh, it, the, the insurance letters are really easy, actually, for us. We have a template that we came up with many years ago that uh, uh, just says, you know, we're a school. We require rigorous work from students. Uh, we don't give grades. If you want us to come up with a GPA, the student has the equivalent of a 3.5 and or, you know, whatever. And that's that. And if you have any questions, give me a call. And I've uh, one insurance company once needed more information from us. Um, otherwise it's, it's, and they still gave the discount in the end. Um, so interestingly, that hasn't been a problem. Um, colleges have not had a problem either. Uh, I think partially a, a lot of our students tend to apply to schools that are, uh, predisposed to not care that much about grades. Um, you know, I had we, our, our first student that went straight to four-year college and graduated from four-year college went to the Savannah College of Art and Design. And that was, you know, uh, stereotypically, it was an art school that wasn't as focused on grades. <laughs> um, uh, and then I have another student now who's at a, a school that in Alverno College in Milwaukee that actually doesn't do grades and they do retakes on tests and all that stuff. And she came back at uh, Christmas this year and told us about how, uh, how much she was like, she just fit right in, um, and understood it. Um, but the schools that do, you know, the, the, all of state colleges here in Wisconsin still are, are based on letter grades. And, uh, we just include a letter with our transcripts that explains what's going on. And sometimes they follow up with us to ask us a few questions. Um, Usually they don't. Um, it, it really just, it, it's been interesting because I think there's this fear that like that parents have and it's legitimate. I understand you want your kid to be successful and you don't want to accidentally uh, mess up their future. Um, but I think there's this fear that like, oh, everybody's runs on grades, but really it seems that there's kind of this behind the scenes, like there's, you know, nobody behind the curtain, like nobody actually cares that much. <laughs> in all the research I've done, I've learned that students don't need grades to get into college. Right. College. Homeschool kids even are admitted. Right. Admitted. There is the misconception that colleges need grades in order to make a decision about admission. Right. I, and I, I would say that the biggest, uh, the, the biggest area that it, 
can be a stumbling block for us is like local scholarship applications um, and where they're just very, they've been established for decades based on the system that is what it was. And for some of those, uh, our students are able to put like, you know, NA uh, and for some of those they can't, and they're just, that, that makes them not eligible for those. And um, I don't think that's fair, but it's also, some of those scholarships were technically established for the regular high school. So they're, it's, I don't know, some of them we've been able to, to argue for our students to be able to apply for some of them. It, it hasn't been a fight we fought, I guess. It seems a shame that your students are excluded from those scholarships. However, they seem to be gaining a, an experience that is much greater than any scholarship could ever afford them. Yeah, I think so. And I, I also think that they, they, they're walking away with the understanding that whatever they do, like what's important is that they find something that's fulfilling for themselves and where they're going to make a difference. And it doesn't have to be college, um, especially when college costs are soaring and we've got this debt crisis and all this, you know, I, uh, one of our students that's happiest with the, one of our graduates that I know is incredibly happy with her life start, went out, started her own business, uh, making, designing t-shirts and stuff. Um, and, and it's really, anytime I run into her, I run into her every couple of years and she's very, very happy with her life. So how can teachers in traditional settings take the plunge into project-based learning? What are some resources you could share to help those teachers get started? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the, the, you mentioned that, like, you know, seeing me on Twitter, I think that for me, Twitter has been really a huge uh, revelation for, for professional development. Um, I, uh, I signed up for Twitter when it was brand new just because I was a... Uh, tech nerd, uh, at the time. And then later, like, was like, this is boring. I don't need this and deleted my account. And then, uh, years later came back to it as a teacher and thought, Oh, this is actually really useful. And you know, there's PBL chat and then there's an enviro ed tag, uh, or hashtag that, that people use on Twitter for, for PBL. Uh, I think that the, the Buck Institute, which recently rebranded their PBL work as PBL works, uh, is, is a very valuable resource. And actually, Edutopia has a lot of really great uh, project-based learning resources. And for, for folks that are in traditional classrooms, the best book that I've read uh, about project-based learning is by Dana Lauer, who used to work for the Buck Institute as one of their um, trainers. Um, and it's called Authentic Learning Experiences. And she really lays out how to set up authentic PBL experiences in uh, traditional classrooms. And as far as environmental education concerns, there is a wealth of resources out there that I think every state has an affiliate of the North American Association of Environmental Ed. Um, in Wisconsin, it's the Wisconsin Association for Environmental Ed, and um, I, I serve on our board for our state affiliate. But uh, if you visit the North American Association for Environmental Ed, which is the NAAAE, they will list all the affiliates for every state. And um, I've met at conferences, many affiliates from many states, and they are all very passionate about getting their work into the hands of educators. And I think that it's just a resource that's out there that people don't necessarily know about. They talk about having conferences where they really have to work hard to get people to attend uh, and to, to just know about what they're doing. And so I think that reaching out locally is really the, the, the best thing for environmental ed. 
because those are the people that know your, you know, know what's going on locally, both in terms of the resources that you have and uh, in terms of uh, the people that you have in the state. I'll be sure to include those in the show notes. What is the best way for listeners to connect with you to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Twitter is probably the, is the most social networking I do. Um, is And there I'm just at Skylar Prim. I'm also on Medium uh, is where I blog. Uh, and there I'm just Skylar P. Uh, and then our, our school has a website at highmark.org. Uh, and our, our school has a Facebook page as well, which is just Highmark. Skylar. Thank you for your time and giving me the opportunity to learn from what you do. My co-editor, Scott, says that you are the teacher living the dream. And I got to agree with him. Yeah, thank you as well. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And that concludes this episode of TG2Cast. If you'd like more information, check us out on our website at teachersgoinggradeless.com or our Facebook group. You can also follow us on Twitter at TG2Chat. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to make sure that you get future installments. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.